Jonah chapter 1. You're all really quiet. It's very intimidating. <clears throat> Say hi, David. Uh, that's it. That's just now. Jonah chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 initially. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So Jonah, you all know the story about Jonah and the fish, and then it became Jonah and the whale, even though it's not necessarily a whale, it's a fish. And whales aren't fish. Sure they're not. There you go. So it's Jonah and there's a fish involved. We're not even going to get as far as the fish today. We're just going to look at the first few verses of of this little book. Jonah gets called by God. And he is called to go and bring a message of grace and repentance to the people of Nineveh because their wickedness has come up before God. It has stirred God and God wants to act and he wants to show these people grace. And he asks Jonah to do it. And if you've read the whole book, which is not very long, it's two pages in front of me here, uh, Jonah finally does get around to it, but he's quite reluctant. And the reason he's reluctant is he basically doesn't think these people are worth it. He doesn't think they deserve God's grace. They're too wicked. Let them rot. Leave them be. Uh, And he's not happy about having to go and bring this message and this opportunity for them to repent. So he not only ignores God, but he runs away from God, which is a pretty stupid thing to do when you think about the fact that God is everywhere all the time. Uh, that running away from him is actually an impossibility. But whenever we're feeling a little bit rebellious and a little bit disobedient, we sometimes make some risky, dodgy decisions. And a side note before we sort of head towards where I want to be, when Jonah decides to run away, it says in verse 3, he found a ship. Now, don't think that finding a ship is some sort of divine seal of approval on your decision to run away. Some of us, we we sometimes have this strange idea about signs. You know, I thought about doing this. I thought about running away from the call of God, and there was a ship, so I guess that means it was the right thing to do. So just because there's a ship there to take you in the direction that you disobediently want to go in does not mean that God has sent the ship. God is going to send plenty of things in this story. He's going to send the big fish. He's going to send a storm. But he didn't send the ship. Jonah went and found the ship. I don't know about you, but I'm really good sometimes at looking at circumstances that seem to be favorable to what I want to do and then deciding that's a sign from God. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And for Jonah, with this ship, it wasn't. So verse 4 We've got Jonah on the ship and the Lord sends a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Now I want you to get onto the ship in your, in your mind. Um, 
Have you ever been on a little boat, just you know, bobbing up and down very small waves somewhere like Loch Earn, and you know, you're, there's not much sailor in you, and you're already starting to feel a bit ropey, even on these little tiny waves. Uh, so we're on the ship, and we're in a violent storm that the ship is threatening to break apart. All the sailors were afraid. Tremendous fear on the ship. Each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. So we've got this picture of tremendous fear. For these men, the wheels are coming off the wagon. The ship is about to fall apart. They think they're going to die. There is no... Um, no lifeboat, lifeguard, RNLI or whatever. There's nobody coming to help. And they're getting battered in this storm. And they're making this frantic effort to save themselves because they don't know any better. So they decide we're in this fix. Let's see what we can do to get out of it. And they start throwing the cargo into the sea. Let's lighten the ship. So, so they're chucking all the stuff into the sea to lighten the ship. Frantic effort. Can you see them working, sweating, fearful, the waves lashing against them and they are with absolute sincerity doing all they can to try and save themselves. And they not only are trying to save themselves, they're each crying out to their own gods. So it's not as if these guys on the ship are all followers of one particular god. There's a whole mixture of different gods represented by the men on the ship. And they are crying out to their various gods for help. None of them crying out to the true God. They don't know any better. And you'll find out why quite soon. But they don't know to cry out to the true God. They're just crying out to whatever gods they know, whatever they have been exposed to as they've moved from port to port and encountered different cultures. They're crying out to gods. And one of the things that I think the devil does to people when they are in a storm is that they try to fix it themselves. These guys are sincere. I'm not saying one critical word about these men as they work hard to try to save themselves. The devil comes in, takes advantage of the fact that they are under pressure and struggling in the storm, and he starts to to put it into their heads. You've got to get yourself out of this. You've got to work this all out and you've got to save yourself. And not only does he take advantage of that, but whenever they cry out to false gods for help. Now, you'll not find in our culture people crying out to little statues or wooden poles or anything for help, but they will cry out to lots of different things to help them in their storm. And whenever we cry out to false gods, Paul tells us that there's somebody lurking behind the scenes. I don't know if I have this. I do have it. 1 Corinthians 10, 20. The sacrifices of pagans, so sacrifices, cries for help made to false gods, are actually picked up by demons. Paul says behind the false god, you know, you might look at at the the Corinthians maybe would have looked at a statue or something and said, but there's nothing there. And Paul said, yes, there's nothing in the statue that these people are crying out to, but behind it, there is. There's a demon. There is a spiritual force wanting to take advantage of people crying out to a false god. And I think in the culture that we live in, 
Lots of people cry out to lots of things for help in their storms. And behind it, demons wait to take advantage of them in their brokenness. Linda and I have have talked a lot lately, I guess probably over the past year or more. I, I think we have become more and more aware of the pain in this community. From just getting to know the place better, getting to know people, we have become more and more aware of the pain and the trauma that exists in this community. There is a storm, and it's probably the same for every community, every town, everywhere. People are trying in vain to rescue themselves, and they are crying out for help, and the devil's coming in and taking advantage of them. We live in what I would call a terrified world, where the sailors are afraid. These sailors were men, tough men, used to being out all night, out in the pitch dark, used to dealing with storms, used to to, to dealing with the fear of a storm. But this particular night was different. And a lot of people are very good at putting on a brave face. I think men... We are particularly good at this. We, we put on a brave face. We're tough and we're strong. But under the surface, there is instability and there is pain and there is trauma and there's a fragility. Do you know the word fragility? Fragile, easily broken. So in this terrified world where you've got our sailors on the boat, crying out to God, or not to God, but to their own gods, the question is, where is the church? I said earlier, I'm not going to criticize these guys for calling out to false gods. They didn't know any better. And I'm not going to criticize them for chucking the cargo over the sides of the ship. They didn't know any better. And the reason they didn't know any better was because Jonah (laughs) was below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Now, Jonah is the man of God here, okay? So even though this is before the cross, this is before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this is before the book of Acts, and what we would talk about, sort of the birth of the church, he still is representing the people of God in this picture. He is the one who has a message from God that he has been told he has to bring to the world and to Nineveh in particular. We have a message from God. A message of grace, not condemnation, a message of grace, a message of love, a message of hope, an invitation to repent and turn and follow Jesus. We have a message from God. The kingdom of God has come. Jonah was that guy. So he represents for me the people of God who have a connection with God. They are God's ambassadors who are meant to bring the presence and the message of God into the world. And he's below deck, lying down, sleeping. All of this carnage is going on above him, above deck, and he's not even conscious of it. Okay, you've got, and you know, as I am interpreting this, you've got the church below deck, sleeping, 
unconscious to the terror that is going on out there in people's lives. The fear, the darkness. He's below deck in a deep sleep. I wonder, does that ring with the church today that some of the church, maybe too much of the church, is below deck sleeping while people are panicking and living in total fear. Sleeping at the wrong time is fairly common in the Bible. Samson does it. Yeah, when he's lying there with Delilah and he gets his hair cut, he falls asleep at a bad time. In Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says to the disciples, you one job, stay awake. <laughs> and they fell asleep at the wrong time. Critical, critical moment. And then you've got that guy in the book of Acts, Eutychus, and he falls asleep during a long sermon. It's been done again since. <laughs> he falls asleep and he actually falls to his death and then is raised from the dead. People sleep at the wrong time. What makes us sluggish? What makes us sleepy? Jonah was sleeping. What are the things that make you sleepy? Do you know the stuff that makes you sleepy and sluggish? Yeah? Screens do it. I sometimes say to, to Samuel before he has a football match or before he's going to training, I'm like, right, you, no screen for at least an hour before you go because when you come off, you're just like, oh, you know, completely zombied by a screen. Being in front of a computer, working all day, whatever, makes us sleepy and lethargic. What you eat, do you find that there's certain foods and after you eat them, you don't want to go for a long walk and burn it off. You just want to sleep. <laughs> Um, a wrong atmosphere, if a room is too warm and stuffy, you get really sleepy, there's not enough oxygen about and, and you start to get a bit drowsy. If it's really cold, you go into sort of power saver mode and you start yawning your head off as well. Inactivity makes you sleepy. Proverbs actually says that laziness brings on deep sleep. The vicious cycle of lazy, tired, lazy, tired and so on. What made Jonah sleepy? I would say this, indifference. And if indifference is not a word that you're particularly familiar with, what it means is lack of interest, lack of concern, lack of sympathy. Jonah, just to put it bluntly, didn't give a damn about the world around him. He didn't care about the people who lived in Nineveh that God had given him a message for. And he didn't care about the sailors up above deck who were thinking they're about to die and calling out to false gods. He didn't care. He was indifferent. In fact, as you read the book of Jonah, I'm convinced your Bible is full of humor. There are points that you are meant to laugh. And you get towards the end of the book of Jonah and you find the guy that didn't care about 120,000 people in Nineveh that he was given a message to bring to. He didn't care about them, but he got upset about a plant that had died. <laughs> yeah, and it is funny, but it also makes the point. You've got this guy who is indifferent. He doesn't care about people. And that makes him sleepy. As long as I'm okay, I will just nod off and nap and drift through life 
inactive, not following the call of God, not bringing what he has given me to the people that I am with. He did not take the call of God seriously. Has indifference crept in? Does indifference make you sleepy? Church. Has a pandemic made you sleepy? Have we hibernated for 18 months and not yet come out of hibernation? Has it made you sleepy? Are you as alert and sharp as you were 18 months ago? In prayer, in devotion, in worship, in loving others? Or are you a wee bit sleepy because of what's happened? As time goes by, do you get sedate? Robin Mark has a brilliant song about getting old. And I'm pretty sure he's younger than me when he wrote it. It's called Men of a Certain Age. Does anybody know the song Men of a Certain Age? It's one of those, it's just tucked away in one of his albums that's not that well known. But he has, he has a line in it, which is brilliant, I think, poetic. Things you once stood for, now you stay seated. When we were young, we would have gone to concerts, we would have queued, we would have stood. When we got a little bit older, when we went to concerts, we booked seats. <laughs> you know, couldn't be bothered with all of that effort. Uh, things you once stood for, now you stay seated. But there's a, there's, a more, there's a deeper meaning to it. Things that you once fought for, stood up about, stamped your feet, raised your voice, got active about things you once stood for, now you've just quietly sat down and you're not as engaged as you were. Have you become sleepy? When you're asleep, you don't realize you're asleep. You're maybe even dreaming that you're doing something good. <laughs> and then you wake up and you realize you didn't do anything good. You're not conscious of what's going on around you. Have you ever woke up in the morning and somebody says, did you hear the thunder last night? And you're like, what? <laughs> you slept the whole way through it. You're unconscious to what's going on around you when you're asleep. And you don't like being wakened up. Whatever it is that wakes you up in the morning, assuming it's not a person, <laughs> whatever it is that wakes you up in the morning probably gets hit. Does it get hit? The alarm clock, the phone, whatever, you know, gets hit. I don't often wake up in the morning, particularly on the Monday, and say, oh, blessed sound of the alarm. Darling, grab your tambourine and let's praise God for this new day. <laughs> we're usually pretty grumpy when we're woke up. A bit sluggish and a bit sloppy. And it's easy to look at the Jonah story as well and to think about Jesus and say, well, hang on here. Didn't Jesus do this? Didn't, you know, wasn't Jesus in a boat with some guys in a storm and they're freaking out in the storm and he's below deck having a snooze? Surely it's similar. Whenever you read two things in the Bible that are quite similar, a, a, a technique to help you understand what's going on is look for the differences. Look for the little things that are different. Jonah was asleep running away from the call of God to go and bring life to 120,000 people. Jesus was asleep 
because he had ministered to people and he was on his way to minister to one broken man on the other side of the lake who was demon-possessed. So his tiredness, Jesus is on his way somewhere. Jonah is running away. Jesus is sleeping the peaceful sleep of a guy who is in the will of God. He's tired because he's pouring himself out in the will of God. Now, burnout is not a badge of honor. Burnout is not something to be cheered on in the church and exhausting yourself and burning out and running to 10 different meetings a week. That is not, I think, what we want to be encouraging people to do. But there is a sweetness to sleep of one who has given themselves, given themselves to others. Jesus has that sweet, peaceful sleep of a man in the will of God doing what he sees his father doing. Jonah, I believe, tossed and turned the whole time, tormented because he's in rebellion against God. Jesus was obedient, he was compassionate, he was on mission. Jonah was disobedient, he didn't care about anything except his plant, and he was refusing to engage in mission. Jesus then got up and stood over the storm and commanded it to be calm. Jonah got thrown into it and was swallowed up by it. So there's a lot of similarities, but it's the little differences that sometimes hit the spot. I would give you a couple of questions before I move on. What is your below deck? Those words struck me last night. What is your below deck? Jonah had gone below deck. Where do you go that cuts you off from the pain of others? Now, we all need the spiritual discipline. I think I mentioned it recently. I can't remember. But we all need the spiritual discipline of solitude and silence. We all need to withdraw. We all need to retreat. We all need time on our own, time with God. Right? So that's, that's a good discipline and a good practice. But do you have a below deck where you shut yourself off from the cries of those who are in fear? Jonah went below deck, closed the wee door if there was one, and shut himself off from all of the turmoil that was going on in the community around him. Do you have a below deck, whether that's a real place or a place in your mindset, a place in your thinking where you just shut yourself off? Well, as long as I take care of my own, it doesn't matter about them. What is your below deck and what is making you sleepy? What, makes you, what is making you sluggish? If you're honest and you, you evaluate and you think, yes, I have become sluggish, what is it that's making you sluggish? What is it that needs to change? And as this story continues, and just want to pull out one more point from Jonah, and then we're going to jump to Jesus and, and finish off. There is an absolutely shattering statement made in verse 6. It's a stunning moment. When you talk about Jonah, people think about fish and they think about storms and they think about Nineveh and they think about being boked up on the beach by a fish. (laughs) Do you ever picture? I picture things too much sometimes. I just see the guy lying on the beach in this pool of whatever, splashing about, trying to... Nobody else thinks that's... Okay. Anyway... 
There's a part in this story that isn't well known or isn't, isn't just, doesn't just come to mind, I think, as easily as some of those other things. And it's this in verse 6. The captain, the pagan, okay? <clears throat> Excuse me. The, the pagan captain of the ship who doesn't know God, who worships other gods, who is rough as the day is long, goes to Jonah, who represents the church, the people of God, the ambassador, the one carrying the message of grace and hope and repentance. This pagan captain goes to Jonah and says, how can you sleep? Get up and call upon your God. I think, silently, without realizing it, the world is screaming that at the church. The world is these sailors in turmoil and fear, thinking it's all going to end. The church is below deck, sleeping. And the world's screaming at the church, would you ever get up and be the church? Would you ever actually get up and bring the message? Would you ever actually get up, get above deck, get in among these men and bring some hope instead of hiding in your little cave? Get up and would you ever even just pray with passion and fire and lay hold on God? He says to Jonah, get up and call on your God. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? It's, it's for me just a... a staggering illustration of of the godless world knocking on the door of the church saying would the real church please stand up because we want to see it we need to see it and not only does the world need to see the church but in order to see jesus we need to see the church there's a passage in john 12 where they're at the feast i think it's the passover And some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the feast. And we read that they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. So we're at the feast in in Jerusalem. We've got Jesus. The disciples are there. And some Greeks come along. Now, loosely, when you read Greeks, you can assume this is people who are outside of the people of God. Gentiles, they're not Jewish, they're not part of God's people, they're outsiders, but they're interested. And they're at this festival, and they come and find one of Jesus' followers who's called Philip. And the request is, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. And that, that's like the, the guys in the boat saying to Jonah, you know, get up and call upon your God. How can you sleep? We want we need to see your God. They come to Philip and say, we would like to see Jesus. Let that rest on you. Because you see every house in this town, that is coming from it to the church. We'd like to see Jesus. We don't want to go to church. I don't want to go to church either. I want to be church. I want to see Jesus. I want people to see Jesus. Going to church... It's not a biblical idea. Being the church, gathering together as the church, that's the scriptures. 
and showing the world who Jesus is, but just showing up and saying, I went, tick, good old me. You know, that's, that's not, there's so much more than that. We would like to see Jesus. I can hear that. I can hear it. That's the, the cry from the hearts of so many people. We, we need to see. They wouldn't say that. They don't know to say it because Jonah's below deck sleeping. But they need, they want to see Jesus. Because do you know Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is incredible. He is awesome. He is beyond words. John said, if, if we could write down all the stuff that he did, there wouldn't be enough room in the world to store all the books that could be written. He's amazing. The world wants to see him. We would like to see Jesus. And it, there's, there's the Greeks who have come. These are non-Christians, non-Jews, non-followers. They're outside of the church. They are you, you call them whatever you want, but they're not following Jesus but they're interested so we've got them on one side and we've got Jesus on the other side but they can't get to Jesus they need to have a Philip and the reason they went to Philip is because Philip's name is Greek okay the, the fella has a Greek name and you see how Philip bridges the gap between the Greeks and Jesus. They connect with Philip because he is a Greek name. They don't ask Andrew and they don't ask John. They don't ask Peter. They ask Philip. It's like, oh, we can connect with him because he's got a Greek name and we're Greek. We've got a point of connection with Philip. So on the one side, Philip can connect with the Greeks. And on the other side, he is a follower of Jesus. So whenever these people come along, we want to see Jesus. He's able to grab them with one hand and say, I can connect with you because I'm Greek. And I can connect with Jesus because I love him. And I can bring you to him. But I think the problem that we sometimes have is we lose this connection here. We lose the ability to actually connect with normal people outside of the church. We can become so, we, we change our language. We change, you ever been in a prayer meeting where everybody suddenly talks in a different language that they normally talk in? Or, you know, you walk in, you're outside in the car park, you're chatting away, and then you walk inside and suddenly it's thee and thou and King James English. We lose the ability to just connect with the people who want to see Jesus. But Philip can do that, and we need to be able to do that. I remember reading of a church, it's a very simple illustration, but reading of a church in the States and they had about nine elders. And each week as part of their meeting of the elders, they all agreed what way they were going to dress on Sunday morning. And one of them would come suited, booted, polished, everything pristine. And at the other end, you'd have one in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops. And then a whole range in the middle. A simple way of just... Meaning that no matter who came in through the door, they would see somebody who's dressed like them and they, would, they wouldn't start to freak out thinking, oh, I'm not dressed right to be here. Just a simple effort to connect. Have we lost the ability to connect with the Greeks and bring them to Jesus? 
Whenever the, the town cries out, we want to see Jesus, do they see anyone who can bring them to Jesus? Or are the Christians all talking Christianese and just living on a, floating around on the clouds, not connected to the real world? The point is that if people are going to see Jesus, they need to encounter us who have something in common with them and who passionately follow and know Jesus. The world wants to see Jesus. And the question is that I poke you with again and again and again. Do we really know him? Not in the, in the means of, are you born again? Are you saved? Do you know him? No, not, not in that. There's no doubt about that. But do we really know him? If somebody wanted to know a lot about me, they could ask Linda. They could ask a few of you who've known me for a long time. But they'd have to ask somebody who knows me if they're going to get an accurate representation. Do we know Jesus? There was something popped up in the news this week about street preaching. And I didn't, I didn't look at it deeply, but somebody had got into bother for street preaching and they were being accused of hate speech. I think they had said something sort of condemnatory about people who choose a lifestyle different than the Bible would put forward. And I thought to myself, did Jesus ever do that? Did he ever stand on the street and rail against people who lived in a different way to him? Did he ever stand on the street and rail against prostitutes? No, he ate with them. Okay. Where on earth did we get the idea that we honor God by railing against people who are broken and hurting and in need of community and love? Where did we get the idea that it was a good idea to go out and shout at them and make them feel worse? Jesus ate with them. You think of the worst, most broken, most, you know, whatever way you want to put it, the person who's, who's living in a way that is just so far from what Scripture sets forth. And you think, what would Jesus do with that person? Would he rail against them? If you think he would, you don't know him. He would not rail against them. He would eat with them. And he would share his life with them. And he would love them. And he would bring them into community. That's what he would do. And they would be transformed by the power of his presence and his spirit. Not by somebody yelling at them. There was a time when, was it, was it James and John came and said, Will we call down fire on these people? Jesus just like, no, dummy, don't. Eat with them. Love them. Journey with them. He only, listen to me, he only rails against the religious people who misrepresent him. And I've told you that and I'll keep telling you that, so bear with me. He gets out both barrels of the gun for the religious people who fail to accurately represent God to those around them. And he sits down and eats with the people that they are condemning. <laughs> I love it. Do you know? Do you know the Jesus of the Gospels? 
it can be so hard sometimes to shake off things that you've picked up and actually just really know the Jesus of the Gospels. I've often thought, what would Jesus do if he was in this town physically for one night only? If he was stood up there at the top of the town where the Christmas tree goes and he had three hours in Tandragee and then he was gone physically, not going to be back, where would he go? I don't think he'd go to church. <laughs> he would go to seek and to save the lost because that's why he came. And he'd be found, I would be almost certain, he would set a meal and he would sit down and eat with people. There's a verse in, in Zechariah and with this, yeah, I'll quit. There's 12 books at the end of the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. They are not an easy read. <laughs> but there's wee gems. And in Zechariah 8.23, Zechariah writes, This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations, ten people from outside of the people of God, so we bring this up to our ten non-Christians, ten people who don't follow Jesus. Ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew, one of God's people, by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. We want to see Jesus. We've heard rumors that Jesus is here. Let us come. I hold on to that and have held on to that since about, I think the first time that hit me was about maybe 2014 and just held a picture in my mind of spiritual refugees coming to the people of God and grabbing hold of them and saying, We've heard, we know nothing about Jesus, but we've heard that he's here. Can we come? We want to see Jesus. Wake up, sleeper, call upon your God. We want to see him. Sleep deprivation is a torture technique. I'm going to torture you. <laughs> Every time we get sluggish, poke, 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 wake up, wake up, wake up, stay awake, spiritually awake, because it's harvest time. It's always harvest time. Proverbs says that he that sleeps in harvest time is a disgraceful son. When there's harvesting to be done and somebody just decides to be indifferent and to just go for a snooze spiritually, Proverbs says that's a disgraceful son. It is harvest time. It is also war time. It's when men sleep that the enemy comes into the field and sows destructive seeds. That's why we need to stay awake. Hold on to that picture of the boat, the storm, the chaos, the fear, the brokenness, and the pagans coming to the people of God and saying, come on, <laughs> we would like to see Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your call upon us